Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to participate in our Holy Week events. With Ash Wednesday behind us and Lent upon us, it means that Holy Week will be here soon. If you don't know what Holy Week is, it is the week that Christians remember, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. I read it like this somewhere. Holy Week honors the week that changed the world. It begins with Palm Sunday and concludes at Easter. Our church has four important events happening in observance of Holy Week and the works of Jesus it remembers. We'd like you to be a part of all of them. The events are on Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter. All of these events will look different, but I believe each will be valuable expressions of worship and meaningful to your souls. You can participate in our Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter gatherings in person or online. If you're in our area, we'd love for that to be in person. Maundy Thursday is an online-only event. I'm not going to explain each of these events here, but instead I want to tell you to go to wilsonville.church slash holyweek. Once you're there, click on the images to learn about the events. Again, it is wilsonville.church slash holyweek. I want to make a special note about Easter. I'm excited about it. It's the first Easter that will feel normal in three years. Can you believe that? We desperately want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with you, and so consider this your invitation to join us. Also, I want you to know that we have an Easter basket filled with some pretty cool stuff for the first 25 people that let us know they are going to attend our Easter service. You can do that by going to wilsonville.church Easter. That is all I need to let you know right now. But again, make sure you go to wilsonville.church slash Holy Week. I hope you'll do it right now if you can, because I really do want to celebrate Jesus and the final week of his life with you. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, there's many things I love about our church. And one, I just, this is just a side note, but I really love uh, this decision we made a long time ago not to worry about how old our music is when we sing it and I thought today's set was really indicative of that like we hit like my 90s kind of Christian music that I connect with we hit a hymn and we hit something newer in there and so we kind of ran the, the gamut today and um, I like that about our church but one thing that I've loved about like and it's bittersweet through the years is that often people are so connected uh, to our church that when they leave, we actually take time out of our service to, to pray for those people. And it, it is obviously a bittersweet moment. The bitterness is that those people that we love are moving away, right? They're going somewhere else. But the sweet part in that is, is obviously that those people were so connected to our church, right? That like we're actually recognizing them leaving, which sometimes, frankly, is just not how it is in the American church. People just you know, they're gone and you, you didn't ever even think about it. And one of the sad parts of our kind of couple years during COVID is that we had so many people who moved out of the state and there was no real goodbye. But I tell you that because that last prayer that I pray for those people feels 
so important, right? Like, like this is, you know, as, as their pastor anyway, this is the last time I'm going to, to pray for them. And uh, I, some of those people I'll pray for as life goes on. And a great, another thing I love about our church is that even when people have moved on, when they need prayer, we're the church that they reach out to. But, but often it'll be the last, you know, last time I'll pray for them or the last time I'll pray for them in their presence, right? And pastorally. And today we're going to look at, I think, that exact type of thing in the life of Jesus. Jesus says, gives, offers up this prayer, and it's the last prayer that he is going to pray in the presence of his disciples. And I think there is so much that we can learn from it. D.A. Carson says he prays Uh, that the course on which he is embarked will bring glory to his father and that his followers in consequence of his own death and exaltation will be preserved from evil and for the priceless privilege of seeing Jesus' glory, all the while imitating in their own relationship the reciprocity, there it is, of uh, living displayed by the father and the son. So here, I mean, just, just that language, I know like I read that D.A. Carson quote, like, like you're not going to embrace all that, but just the language, I think of, of the bigness of what uh, D.A. Carson says there. And, and here's Jesus praying his final prayer with his disciples. And man, that's just worth paying attention to all by itself, right? Like if you were here with Jesus and he says, I'm going to pray for you one more time before I go, you'd be like, I need to pay attention to the things that are said, and, and here's, I just want to give you the three kind of the big themes of this, and we'll cover those as we move throughout. But I, I think that Jesus prays for his disciples, and as an extension for us, three just major things, and that is that he prays that we will be protected, sanctified, and unified. Protected, sanctified, and unified. This is uh, how it begins in John 17, 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. Now, what's interesting about this is we come to a, a new chapter. I, I think it's really important here to remember there's two, two big things. Who is praying and when they are praying. The who is Jesus, and that makes this prayer really important in and of itself. In fact, as, as you read this, I think it's good for you to know, to think about, you, maybe you never thought about this before, that we actually don't know a lot about the content of Jesus' prayers while he's on earth. Like, we don't get glimpses into what he actually says when he prays very often. And so that makes this unique in and of itself, right? Like, we're told Jesus goes up and he prays for hours, but we don't get to see here often what he prays. In the book of John, in fact, it's just two times. It's this prayer in front of Lazarus' tomb where he actually says, I'm only praying this so that these people can hear. And then there's this prayer that we get to, to actually read and see the content of. But, but also, on top of that, it's Jesus praying, which makes it important, but it's, it's the end. It's the last thing he's going to pray you know, with his disciples in this type of intimate setting. And, and what's interesting to me, I, I don't know why um, I, I always did, and there's a little bit of debate about this, but I always pictured this as, as the Garden of Gethsemane prayer, like where Jesus is sweating drops of blood, if you know that story, like where he goes out alone. I always pictured it that way. And just when I read this and, you know, even beginning to prepare for this sermon, I was like, oh, wait, this seems like really connected to everything we've been 
talking about? Like, it doesn't say Jesus goes off alone to pray. It says, after Jesus said this, and that's a, we've been talking about this farewell discourse here where Jesus is having the Last Supper, and he's using this last meal with his disciples to, to teach them these things that they need to know before he is killed and then, you know, subsequently rises again and ascends in heaven. This is like part of that last training that he gives these men who he's been close to, he's hung out with for three years. And at the end of that, this is when he prays. And it really struck me, maybe all of you knew that and you were just way ahead of me, but like it really struck me that Jesus is not only making this final kind of prayer with them, but, but like they can hear it. Like, like, like they would have learned from this prayer. They, they know what he's emphasizing here. And I guess I had never even, that had never even crossed my mind before that, that you know, while we get to read it, that these, the disciples that he was hanging out with, they could hear it. And it reminded me of, of a professor that I've talked about before uh, in sermons, Dr. Alan Carr. Uh, Gateway Seminary. Uh, This is a guy I had for one week. For those of you that were just in the connection course, I mentioned how he changed my life uh, by by just demonstrating this different picture of church. But he also said this other thing. I had this guy one single week, and I just talk about him all the time still, it seems like. But he, he, he was asked in the middle of this class that I had with him, in your home church, he had a home church, like, what do you do to disciple people? And he said, oh, I just pray with them. Like, you just pray, like, you don't have a plan, like, you don't, you know, you don't have a book, you know, like, I mean, like, that's all you do is you pray with them. He said, yeah, I just, I just pick like, you know, three or four guys and, and I I make sure that I at least pray with them once a week for a few minutes. Some of them on the phone, uh, some of them in person, I just pray with them and, and, you know, we're like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like that good of a discipleship model, you know, that's how I would have said it back then probably. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, I just found when I pray with people, it teaches them a lot without me having to teach them a lot. It teaches them theology and the way that I interact with God, the things I say about God. It, it teaches them morality when I'm you know, praying about sin and the things that I want to avoid. It, even, it, it teaches in some ways just the things that I value and uh, that I don't value by what I am praying for or not praying for. I teach guys about uh, what a good marriage looks like, and, and I teach them about what it means to be a good father. I, I'm teaching all of these things and just doing it by simply praying for them a, a few minutes. Uh, I think he did some of them daily. Like I just call them and pray with them daily. And, and I thought it was brilliant at the time, and here in this moment where Jesus spends the end of his time with his disciples praying, I just think about that. All of the things that he was teaching them just by praying for them. And I think that it's Jesus, it's the end, but also it's a prayer that we get to look at and think about. I think all of that teaches us some really important, or it tells us that it can teach us some really important For hundreds of years, this has been called the high priestly prayer. I just tell you that so that someday if you you hear somebody say the high priestly prayer, you'll know that it's talking about John 17, but I'm not going to read it all to you today. And so I want to say something I've said a lot in the last several weeks because we've been covering bigger chunks of scripture than I normally cover. Read it. Like, 
this week, read John 17. I'm not just like saying it's a good idea. I'm saying go and home, make it homework, write it down on your notes. I'm going to read John 17. I hope you'll read all of John if you haven't done that while I've been preaching through it. But read John 17 for all of the reasons that I've already said to you. Now, there's one more thing before I look at, at some of the specific you know, words within this prayer. There's one more thing that I think is, is important here, and that's that, that this prayer seems to have a, a chiastic structure. It's a chiasm, which is, is, a, is a word that means like, well, let me show you a picture here. Hopefully you can see this as it comes up here. And so you, you see kind of the A, B, C, D, C, B, A, uh, outline that is within this prayer, and this is a this is like a a, a way that that I think more Eastern writers often wrote. There's, there's lots of places in the Bible. And, and, and this kind of structure points oftentimes, or, or usually, to the thing in the very center of it as the most important. And so it's a different way of outlining. In, in kind of Western world, all of my sermons, in fact, are like this. Like, like I go A, and then I say, you know, like here's B, C, D, but it all kind of point to A and then I finish, you know, with A again. Like we would just kind of go with that order, right? But sometimes in the Eastern world, there's this structure so that the middle, you know, is the emphasized thing and the other points are built, they build that middle thing versus like an intro and the body and then the conclusion, right? And so what strikes me about that here, that happens a lot. I read that a lot and I preach and I never say anything about it to you. But here, but here, I think it's so important because at the middle of it all, John 17, 13, I am coming to you now, Jesus talking to God, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I love that because we're talking about being a disciple and what that looks like for Jesus. And here in this final prayer, I think that at the heart of it all is joy. And often, often as modern American Christians, we can miss the fact that the greatest joy, the full measure of joy is actually found when we most fully live for Jesus. Like we think, we think Jesus gives me joy, but I could have maybe a little more if I just try to serve Jesus and maybe not serve him in certain areas of my life. But here in this final prayer, Jesus, I think, structures it to point to the fact that the greatest joy that you can have is found in serving him the best you can. And so with that in mind, again, let me just say that, that I think here Jesus really, is. if that's the center, if that's the center, our joy, there's three kind of big ideas that Jesus prays for. He prays that you will be protected, sanctified, and unified. Protected, sanctified, and unified. And, and true joy, as we'll see, I think, is found in listening, obeying, and trusting Jesus. Listen to obeying and trusting Jesus. Now, remember, as we've moved through this, right, we've seen all these things, and I'm going to give you an attempt at a summary here. Uh, I haven't been as rhymy in this sermon series, and so it was a little harder for me to summarize all that we've seen, but we've seen like follow him and love and pray and obey and abide and be fruitful and listen to the Holy Spirit and don't drift away 
like Jesus, like we or like Judas, not like Jesus. Like it's so. It's not the first time I've done that in a sermon. Um, like, don't drift away like Judas, uh, J U D A S. Don't drift away like him. Uh, and, and so, in, in the middle of all that, is I think Jesus is like, this is this is where your joy is found. Follow, follow his example specifically. Love, pray, obey, abide, be fruitful. Listen to the Holy Spirit, and don't drift away like. Judas. Now, as we move through this prayer, and I, I look at the specifics of the prayer, again, I'm not going to read it all. What I am going to read to you is, is the verses that I think kind of point to those three big ideas best. There's a lot in between that's really good, and I'm not trying to hide it or you know just skip over it for no reason, but I think those, those things are, are, are the driving ideas of this prayer, and, and Jesus, even after he prays these things, then he says more about them, and I'm not going to read those verses. I just want to read the verses where he actually kind of prays for those things, and the first one is in John 17, 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, Jesus is leaving, and, and he's going to leave in, you know, the, the next story. I mean, next week we begin a series of sermons here that's going to be called Passion, and it's, you know, it begins with the arrest of Jesus, and it will move all the way to Jesus' final breath that I'll actually preach that mini sermon on Good Friday. And so like this is this is like the like he is going away from them right now and he alludes to that in his prayer and he prays for protection. I think it's so important as we think about protection to remember how Jesus addresses God here, his father, he calls him holy father. And I think that that, that idea, Holy Father, is what makes God's protection for us so important. He is both holy and he is a father. Uh, You know, like when you look at your dad, he's the one that you want to protect you. If you grew up in a home with a good dad, you look at your dad, that's the protector. It's for two reasons, right? It's because he loves and he's the strongest person in the world. At least that's what you think, you know? I mean, like it's, it's his love and his strength. And here in this address to the Father, Jesus recognizes both of those things, that God is holy and God is loving. God's holiness is God's power in some ways because holiness for God is everything that makes him bigger and better than us. And so we can look at God and recognize that he, we know this, this is like how we define God. He is all powerful. And so that means we should want his protection, but he also loves us, and that should make us want his protection. The question is, what do we need protected from? What do we need protected from? Now, Jesus says this this name stuff, and it probably embedded within that, without going into too much detail, is this idea that Jesus is, is asking that the disciples be protected for faithfulness. He wants them to be protected for faithfulness. And also uh, here we see Jesus refer to unity. He says so that. And so Jesus wants these disciples and us to be protected for unity, for faithfulness and for unity. But in verse 15, Jesus gets more specific about what They need to be protected from. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
I mean, I think we all know, we've had times in our life where we wish this was true, that the, the, the easiest way, at least from our perspective, the easiest way for God to protect us would just be to take us to heaven. Have you had moments in your life where you're like, why am I still here? You know, like if I was like, I, like Jesus, take me now, you know, like I'm tired of this, like it's too hard, it's too difficult, I'm struggling along too much, why am I still here? But Jesus here, he doesn't pray that you be taken out of the world. He even says that. I'm not praying that they'll be taken out of the world. What I am praying is that you'll protect them from, from what? The evil one. The evil one. He's praying that we are protected from Satan. Now, again, I think this prayer needs to be paid attention to. There's so much that we can learn. And one of the things that we must pay attention to is that Satan, Satan is real and we need to be protected from him. I mean, in the Bible, it tells us that he prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. The, the Bible tells us that there's a war being waged against our souls. It tells us that we need to put on the armor of God. Uh, the language of the New Testament is that, that there is a battle going on in the spiritual realm for our souls. Now, let me be clear. Sometimes when we talk about battle language in the Bible, we, we make it us versus other people almost, right? Like we can place that and like they're the enemy and, you know, like I'm mad at them and they're on the other side of, you know, the political idol or whatever. And that's how we sometimes, like we, and sometimes we even use it for non-Christians. Like we're, the battle's marching on and, you know, we're going we're gonna to win the war for you. And that's not really the idea biblically. The idea is that for every one of us, Every person, there's a war in places that we can't see that is happening. And Jesus prays that we'll be protected from that. I think that two things must be true as we read that. First, you have to recognize that there is a spiritual war because one of the great travesties of modern American Christianity is that we pretend that evil does not exist. I said in a sermon many, many years ago, and it's stuck in my head, if no, not for not anybody else's head, like we act as though Christianity is a walk in the park when the Bible describes it as a, a battle. And, and until we recognize the truth of what Jesus prays here, that Satan wants to get us, then I think it's going to be hard for us to, to make victories in the battle because we're not fighting, it's really bad when you don't fight, right? When you're not trying to gird up, as it says in 1 Peter, or put on the armor of God, as it says in the book of Ephesians. Like, it's really hard to win when you're not even trying to win. And so for one, you just need to recognize that Satan wants to get you. He wants to pull you away from Jesus, just as he did Judas, which I talked about a few weeks ago. But on top of that, if Jesus is praying for my protection, then, well, I think I should be praying for my protection, and I should be praying for other people's protection. You know, if you've been around for like three weeks, that I'm sometimes bothered by how, I don't know, we pray, like just how light and fluffy and American our prayers are. But what if, like what if we were on our knees asking that our loved ones would be protected for the, from the work that Satan would want to do in their lives. Small or big, you know, like that we were on our knees saying, God, protect 
those people, protect that person from the roaring lion that wants to get them. What if, you know, I talked about inviting people to Easter. What if our prayers were like, Satan wants to prevent them from getting to you, God, but will you, will you get out, get them out of the way so that they'll, they'll embrace you as their savior and, the, and that they could have the hope and the joy, you know, that you want them to have. I, I think that we need to recognize the evil one's presence and existence and fight, and we also need to pray for the protection of ourselves and for others. And then in John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, The word sanctify is, you know, a fancier word of saying holy, really, like it's a word connected to holiness, same Greek biblical word that is used. Holiness is an attribute of God in the Bible. Primarily, that's that's how holiness is used, an attribute of God. And it is, as I said earlier, you know, power is a part of that. But holiness is all the things that make God uniquely and infinitely greater and better than us. His all-knowingness, his all his power, his ability to be anywhere and everywhere, things that we cannot do. But I would even say it's his perfect goodness and his perfect, you know, grace and his perfect love, things that, those things we can aspire to move towards and get better in, right? But we still are never going to be perfectly loving like God is love. And and so the holiness of God is all of that that makes God uniquely better and greater than us. But here's what's crazy about being a Christian. We are, through the blood of Jesus, made holy. Like, so God uses this attribute for himself, holiness, but then we are then made holy. And that's, I know, a bit funny sounding when you're like, well, that's an attribute for God. What does that mean for us? Well, frankly, it means that we are then set apart in a different way for God. We are, we are set apart. That's another way that this is translated. We are set apart. We are made something different by becoming Christians. Now, I know in our modern world and the way we like to communicate, we, and, and I'm, I'm part of this. I'm this way. Like, we don't want to separate ourselves from the lost world too much. We don't want to act holier than thou, as we sometimes say. We don't want to, you know, pretend that we're better than people in and of ourself. And so maybe we've let this language drift. But the reality is, by becoming Christians, we are like moved into a new realm. We've moved from Adam to Christ. We've moved from death to life. We've moved from slavery to freedom. We have been set apart, we've been made holy. But then even on top of that, where it gets you know, a little more complex, is that then we become holy, but then we're called to become holier. <laughs> like we're supposed to move forward in our holiness, in our set-apartness. And so that's kind of how holiness is used in Scripture. And here Jesus, in his final prayer, looks up into heaven. He looks at his Father in heaven. He says, set them apart more, basically. Make them holy. Sanctify them. This is, you know, uh, I think things that we know about Christianity. Most often, I think what we think of is there's things in our lives that we need to remove, right? Like we need to stop doing certain things. And where I think Christianity has gotten it wrong a lot is that we only focus on the things that we need to stop doing. I mean, stop telling lies, stop lusting, all these things. And we should. That's part of holiness. 
But there's all of these good things that the Bible says that we should be growing in as well. If you talk about, if you use the word growth or improving your Christian walk to go back a couple of decades and how we talked about things, we've used fire in the past, but all these words that we use, right, they all mean to become more holy in some way. And part of that is like becoming more gracious and becoming more loving and, and, and growing in our willingness to serve others. And I would just say, all of these things that Jesus has described to us in his farewell discourse, in his final conversation with his disciples. We should follow his example better. We should love more fully. We should pray. We should lean on the power of the Holy Spirit and, and learn to follow him better. We should, you know, uh, sacrifice for the good of other people. It's not just about removing things from our life, but it's also about growing getting better at certain things, producing fruit, as Jesus has already said it in, in this last supper. And he says here this interesting thing. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I, I love this because I do believe that being sanctified, being set apart more, growing as a Christian, happens through truth. I think the more we understand truth, the more we grow in truth, the more we just frankly grow. And it begs this question, and I think this, man, I, I think that I'm maybe just using this word because I think this is such an important concept in, in our modern world. Like, we have to determine, each and every one of us, how we determine what is true. Do we not? Every person does it. In my generation, it's, it's in large part been driven by feeling. What I, what I feel to be true is, in fact, true. Everybody has to, and one of the sad things, I think, for, for young people today is that nobody's asking them just to figure out how they determine truth. So if you're one of the young people, like, I would say, figure out how you figure out what is true. Jesus, near the end of his life, in a story we'll look at, he's arrested, he's being tried by a guy named Pilate, he looked, Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? And I think we all need to wonder that. And Jesus here, he tells us how he answers it. It's how I think every Christian should answer it. It's, it's God's word. That's what is true. And this is what we are sanctified by. God's word is truth, and it is what sanctify us. Now, we've already heard from Jesus. He's told us that the Holy Spirit leads us to this truth, and I think that happens in a couple of ways. One, the Holy Spirit is going to give more revelation, and we call that the New Testament, and I think we need to look at the New Testament. We need to understand that the New Testament is true. It is truth, and so I believe, I think that everything that we try to decipher about, is that true or not, needs to be done through the lens of the Bible, specifically the revelation that is given to us in the New Testament. Now, when I say that, I think a lot of people, a lot of people are hurt by people telling them things that are not true and then telling them it comes from the Bible. And I would just say that like, if your source of truth, if I'm your source of truth, then it's not good. Like, I hope I present to you truth every week, but the actual source of truth is, is 
the thing that the Holy Spirit inspired to give us through the authors of the Bible. A lot of people are hurt because they go 20 years and they think, I just was listening to somebody, this is fresh on my heart, Philip Yancey, if you know who that is. Like his experience, his story is one of being told things were true that just aren't biblical at all. Like God hates people. Or do you need to become a Christian every Sunday because you sinned last week? These things are not true. And so I would say, don't make some preacher the word of God for you. Make the word of God the word of God for you. But also, I said this, the Holy Spirit leads us to truth, not just through the New Testament, but also giving us specifics about the general revelation that has been given to us in the Bible. And so you look, I mean, we have a million situations that don't come up in the Bible, right? I mean, I mean, we saw it last year and I, like in the last couple of years, right? Like how do we respond to COVID as a church, right? And I'm just giving you, this is an example for me. And I can tell you, and I love this, I love being able to tell you this, that our elders, we sought to respond in a biblical way. And I think that the Holy Spirit then guided us to make some decisions. Now, some people watching online or not watching anymore, they think, yeah, right, buddy, like you did it all wrong. That's okay. We did our best to look at the teachings of the New Testament. And by the way, nowhere in the New Testament it says, hey, when there's a pandemic and the rules you know, say that you need to do this, then this is how you respond. Well, there's nothing like that in the Bible. I wish there was. It would have been really helpful. But we had to rely on the Holy Spirit to instruct us in the specifics, and we tried to do that. The Holy Spirit gives the specifics for the general truths of Scripture. And so I would say, here's the, I mean, the first one, or the second one, excuse me. He says, hey, I pray for protection, but he also prays that we'd be sanctified, and that happens through truth. And so I hope that you will learn from this, that yes, God wants you to grow. Jesus wants you to grow. And he wants you to grow through, through the word of God. And so make the word of God, reading it, learning it, understanding it better, one of the key driving forces of your life. Because as Jesus was going away, this is what he prayed. The last one, it's almost funny to me because as I say, some people, you know, they didn't like our decisions. They may be gone now because, because sometimes this, you know, this can be counterproductive to what he says next. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the last couple of years, we've seen this, Right? God-loving, God-fearing Christians that, that look at the revelation of Scripture and then try to lean on the Holy Spirit to guide them, and they come to two totally different places, right? We've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years. And I think that it's beautiful that Jesus then, the last big thing he prays in this prayer is like for unity at the same time. D.A. Carson said, is a unity predicated on adherence to the revelation the Father mediated to the disciples through his Son, the revelation they accepted and then 
passed on. The unity Jesus is talking about is done by following and through following him. It reminds me of Paul's language in several places. 1 Corinthians 1.10 may be the most explicit. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. I just feel like that's like, there's a lot of people you know, who are trying to get it wrong, right and looking at scripture and trying to lean into the Holy Spirit and they're, they're doing their best, but they're, they're kind of ignoring this, that we, should, that we should be striving towards unity. I can tell you it's possible. It is possible to look at the New Testament to be, to be, trying to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life and to come to two totally different decisions about what that actually should look like. And I can tell you that it is also possible to still be unified despite that. I'll come back to our church in the last couple of years because I think, man, one of the things I'm most proud about is the way that the four elders of this church just hung in there together. All of the elders of this church have a few things in common. We love Jesus. We read the Bible. <laughs> we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and we try to follow what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. And man, we never agreed. I've told you this. Like uh, Throughout the whole thing, we just came to different places on how we should respond to COVID. And not one single time, not one time, did we ever fight argue. You could have watched all of our conversations and the Zoom calls and the Discord, you know, interactions we had. You could have been there for all of them. You've been like, those guys still love each other. And so here Jesus is like, God, help them to grow in the truth, but also God, like, please unify them. Now, uh, one author said, this is not just, listen, this is important. This isn't just taking the lowest common denominator thing that, that we can find and saying, oh, unity, baby, like we got that one thing in common. That's not what this is about. What it is about is all of us actually doing our best to understand the real truth and to live in light of that, and that is what creates this unity, if I ever would have thought that one of our elders was like, I don't care what scripture says anymore, it would have created a, a disunity in many ways. Now, we could have I would have still loved them and, you know, hopefully been on their side, but it would have cracked the unity, right? And what sometimes happens is people want to disregard God's word altogether and then call for unity, and that just can't be given this prayer. Instead, the unity is created as we go at trying our best to grow in the truth of God as we hopefully are being protected by God by the power of the evil one, from the power of the evil one. We, we you know, I think it's interesting because one of the ways that Satan fights the most against his people is through disunity, am I Right? And, and sometimes that disunity can come just over the stupidest things. But here, Jesus, I feel like in his prayer for his people, he's like, he, he balances all of these things that sometimes we think can easily get out of balance, right? Like, we need protection from the evil and we agree, but, but sometimes we say, well, if I throw out truth, then I can have unity. 
That happens in the church world, right? But Jesus is like made clear that we grow through the truth. But at the end, he's saying fight for unity. And so, man, I just practically, practically do your best to be unified in a way that you're like one heart and one mind with people. And you'll have, this is going to be one of those Holy Spirit things in your life. Like there, there is a tension, right? Because when people start to throw things out that we recognize as biblically true, where is that line? And I would say, that's one of those things. You're gonna have to seek the Holy Spirit's leading, but actually seek it. Because I see a lot of Christians willing to throw away relationships so quickly, and it doesn't seem as though the heart is near the heart of Jesus in this passage. And the heart of Jesus is for truth and unity. It seems like there are too many Christians whose heart is for disunity, to be honest. Like, I disagree with them a little, and so I'm gonna fight them. Our hearts should be for, if they're in line with Jesus, for, for unity. It requires, though, I'm gonna quote D.A. Carson one more time, common adherence to the apostolic gospel by love that is joyful, self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged by self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. Again, you can't just throw things away. I think that's one of my, if I, you know, struggle, it's that oftentimes, oftentimes it, it seems like there's pushback against people who want to hold to the truth that Jesus has already mentioned. It's like, well, they don't want to be unified, and that's, we can't just take that out of this. And before I finish, I want to just read to you a couple of verses at the end of the passage. I think, honestly, I think they just show a bit of like the heart of Jesus as he finishes. I'm going to read verse 24 and 26 of John 17. Again, I'm not hiding verse 25. It's not like a passage about, I don't know, uh, the role of women in the church or something that I'm trying to skip over. Like, it just, I just want you to hear the heart of Jesus in verses 24 and 26. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have been given because, have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself Maybe in them. It's this picture in this entire prayer of, of like this perfect love that's been demonstrated throughout John between the Father and the Son. And, and, and then it's saying, it's saying this, like God, bring them into this and make them one with each other so that they can be one like we are one and make them one with us. It's like, it's like the picture that is painted is something that I long for and I think we should long for, that we are just so united that our relationship is like a picture of the Trinity, but also that then together we unite to God in such a way that we are just a part of them as they are, the beings in the Trinity, a part of each other. And, and if that's going to happen, then the things that are said here, the things that Jesus pray, prays for here must be paid attention to, adhered to, lived out in our own lives. And I think we need to make them the prayers of our heart as well. We must pray for 
uh, protection and we must pray for sanctification and we must pray to be unified. And I would say at the same time, as we pray for these things, we must recognize that we have a role to play. Don't give Satan a foothold. It says it like that in, I think, the book of Ephesians. Work to be sanctified and strive for unity. Do all of those things. I believe that if it's good enough for Jesus to pray as he's about to leave these people behind, if he wanted his disciples to hear these prayers, then he wants us to hear them too because we are his disciples and he wants us to pay attention to them. Not just because he knows what he, and so we know what he values, but also I think it helps us to know what we should live out. And so remember that Jesus prays that you will be protected, sanctified, and unified and do your best to pray the same and then to follow him in living out those prayers to the best of your ability. Let me pray that that will happen. Lord, I, man, I think about so much that just seems um, relevant here to me, God. And, uh, you know, first, I think we live in a country that, that, that fails to recognize or wants to dismiss evil maybe more than any other nation and maybe more than any other nation like at any time in history. I don't know all the nations, Lord, but, but it seems like everything I know of history and everything I know of, of you know, the non-Western world today, like people recognize evil and, and are scared of it in some ways. And, and Lord, we as Christians... I mean, we, we have this book that says so much about evil, and I, I just ask that we who are Christians, we would, God, not be scared of the evil one, but we would recognize the evil one, and it would make us run to you, Lord. I even pray for those who aren't Christians, God, that, that in whatever way, and this is the story, I think, for, um, for many, God, and their testimonies, like, like the first thing they had to do was recognize evil, or at least it was a part of it. And so God, for those who don't, have never given their lives to you, I just pray that they would uh, recognize that evil is real and that Satan wants to give them too and they would run to you, God, for their protection. And then God, for, for those you know, of us who follow hard after you, I do pray that you would sanctify us by your truth, that we, let this be a, chur- a church that, that seeks truth, God, that that is desperate for the truth of your word and for the leading of the Holy Spirit and let us embrace truth and never waver, God, uh, in our willingness to, to, to recognize and proclaim truth. Let us be a truth-telling church and a, uh, a truth-upholding church, God. And uh, I think that's one of the, the things that the, the church is called to is to, to be a banner of truth. And I pray that this, this little congregation would do that, Lord. And then I pray, God, for unity. And I thank you so much that, that for the most part, God, we have maintained unity here at Creekside Bible Church. That is a gift, Lord. And we maintained unity in the last couple of years despite so many things that we disagreed on how to handle, Lord. And I, I pray that that would be a witness and a testimony to a watching world. And I pray that there would be more of it in the church, Lord. Often it seems that the loudest voices are the ones God, the, the most um, divisive voices are the ones who end up, you know, with all the views on the internet, with TV shows, Lord, and, and, and I just pray that, that maybe you'd give a voice to those who are fighting for unity, God, and maybe you'd give a, uh, a platform to those, Lord, who are, you know, fighting for truth and God uh, at the same time, 
trying to be unified wherever they can be unified, Lord. Uh, let, it, let, the, let the church in this country become more unified, Lord. And I believe just as our church is here, Lord, let there be more of that in the American church and around the world as well, Lord. And I pray in all of it, Lord, we would follow hard after you so that we can be filled with the fullness of your joy. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.